He says, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And Father, we pray uh, again in the name of Jesus that you would help us, Lord, prepare us accordingly that we might continue to worship you now by looking to and Lord expectantly believing that your spirit wants to speak things to us through what he has already spoken to us in the written word of God. So Lord, bless your word, prepare us to hear your voice. And we ask this together in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think the awareness that at any given time, but at the same time at an unknown hour, that someone might appear who we then have to perhaps give account to serves in a good way to kind of help keep us on track, resisting misbehavior and really helping us continue to do what's right. For example, I think one of the most obvious pictures of that is that simple awareness of a child that their parent may be returning home soon but they don't know the exact hour that they're going to come through the door. Uh, that may have over the years deterred a few parties. It may have helped a few kids to behave a little better with the babysitter in the last window, perhaps, that they knew their parent was coming home soon, but they didn't know the exact hour that they would actually be arriving. And knowing they would have to give account for what they were doing, that has helped some children to resist behaving badly and maybe to keep them in line, behaving a little bit more properly in a healthy way. Well, that same reality is also true spiritually. Knowing, being certain that our Lord Jesus Christ is one day returning soon and may appear at any given hour, but yet we don't know the hour, serves in a very wonderful way to intend to help us to stay on track spiritually. Knowing that Jesus is coming again, that he is going to show up and that we are going to see him helps us live healthy spiritual lives. And that's what John we see here addressing in our passage this morning as he talks about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very reading in itself conveys that this is what John's speaking about as he describes it in different ways with different phrases. He talks about when he appears. He talks about his coming. He says, when he is revealed. So again and again, we see these phrases referring to this reality of the return of the Lord. When he appears, at his coming, when he is revealed. And this is what John really seems to be focusing in on in this section. 
The background, remember, we just looked at last time. John there began talking about this reality that we are in the last hour. That is, we are in the the last timetable leading up to the day of the Lord. And one of the ways he said we can know and recognize that is by the proliferation of spiritual deception. That as we see continuous deception and people being misguided and deceived, that as there's an increase of spiritual deception, that is one of the ways that we know, we can recognize that it is indeed the last hour, that there would be an anti-Christian spirit that would intensify in the world, ultimately culminating in actual personage, the Antichrist himself, which John spoke about. Second Timothy 3.13 tells us that in the last days, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, he says, deceiving many. But yet John assured us in the last chapter as well, in chapter two, that all believers have thankfully been given the spirit of truth from Jesus who dwells within us to help us with our internal compass to be able to live within. And the spirit of truth helps us to recognize the difference between what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, to detect error and to be able to discern what is true and right and genuinely from God so that we can walk in truth. And John was exhorting us that we must remain in relationship to the word of God. We must remain in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the ways by which we stay anchored spiritually until the Lord returns to pick us up and to bring us home to where our true citizenship is in heaven. So with that as a backdrop, notice John says here in verse 28, and now little children, he says, abide in him, referring to Jesus still from the prior verse where he said abide in him, abide in Jesus, remain in him, so that when he appears, he says, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So notice the first thing we see John do in our text here is he encourages believers to remain in close connection to the Lord Jesus Christ relationally so that when Jesus returns, when he appears at his coming, it will be a welcomed experience and not an embarrassing interruption. That's the goal. That when Jesus returns, it will be an enthusiastic, welcomed experience for the child of God and not an embarrassing interruption when Jesus steps back into this world to take us home. He speaks of a set time here in verse 28 using two phrases that when he, that's Jesus, appears at his coming. Now, when Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry, as he completed his earthly ministry, living among humanity as a man, which culminated at the end with him dying on the cross sacrificially for our sins, bearing the wrath of God so that we don't have to be punished for our sins as sinful people, then rising again back out from among the realm of the dead, then walking in a glorified, resurrected body for 40 days, the Bible says, showing himself to be alive. And then Jesus ascended back up into heaven, back to the throne of God from where he originally came and where he always was before he came to earth 
to live as a man. The Bible records that as Jesus ascended back up into heaven, Acts chapter one, it records the events of Jesus's ascension back into heaven. It says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as Jesus went up, Behold, two men stood behind them in white apparel, they were angels, who said these words, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So as Jesus ascended back into heaven, The angel spoke of that very reality. Look, this same Jesus who lived among you these past, you know, 33 and a half years, who did ministry among you for these last three plus years, who died for your sins and rose again, this same Jesus, they said, he's coming back once again. So there was this clear indication. Jesus himself in John 14 promised the same thing in connection to his departure. Remember in John 14, Jesus kept speaking about John 14, 15, 16, kept talking about how he was going away, that he was going to be departing from them. And remember, this was freaking out the disciples. And we have to understand, you know, they had become very accustomed to Jesus's presence. And he was quite a helpful guy to have around. You didn't understand something, Jesus explained it. You didn't have something, Jesus provided it. The religious leaders hassled you or people persecuted you. Jesus, like a big brother, dealt with it. Jesus was healing people and caring for people and leading and guiding them. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, I'm departing. I'm going away. And all of a sudden, they're, they're petrified at this reality. And Jesus spoke many things to assure them, not only the comfort of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus was not going to abandon them as orphans, but he was going to send the Spirit to help them, to live within them, to walk with God, to know how to keep having a relationship with God. But one of the other things Jesus spoke to comfort them was to assure them he was coming again, that he was returning. Jesus in John 14 said this, let not your heart be troubled In my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, he said, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. So Jesus assured of this reality that even as he appeared once, and lived among them once, and then ascended back into heaven, he assured them, listen, I am going away, but I'm going back into heaven to prepare a place for you. And I intend when I am ready, just like the groom would prepare a place, and then when it had the approval of the father, he could then go pick up his bride and consummate the marriage and move her. And Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and bring you there. I'm going to bring you to this dwelling place in heaven where I'm at. You know, in the New Testament, we find over 300 references for those who are smart enough to count such things. I haven't. You can spend time checking if that's right, but that's what they tell us. Over 300 references to the return of the Lord in the New Testament. There's not even 300 chapters in the New Testament. But over 300 references, they say, within the New Testament 
to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, assuring us that this same Jesus who came to earth once humbly as a suffering servant to die for humanity's sins upon the cross, that that same Jesus will come once again, but as a glorified Lord, as a victorious king to conquer when he returns the second time. Jesus speaks of this in Luke 21 and Matthew 24. Let me just read you some of what Jesus says in regards to him coming again in power and great glory. Jesus says there, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations. Does it look like there's distress of nations going on? With perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, and men's hearts will be failing them from fear of the expectation of things that are coming on the earth. Does it seem like everybody on the earth is freaked out of what might happen next? Fear gripping the hearts of humanity because of the expectation, oh my goodness, what might come next? What next issue? What next catastrophe? What next war? What next pandemic? And, and people terrified. They have an expectancy that only horrible things are going to happen. Their hearts failing them for fear and anxiety and panic setting in over humanity. Everything seems to be falling apart. And Jesus says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, as those things characterize, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to happen, Jesus said, look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. In Matthew 24, Jesus says as well, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as it was in the days of Noah, so also will be in the coming of the son of man. So what do we look for in the coming for the coming of the son of man? We know what it was like in the days of Noah, right? Proliferation of barbaric violence, Sexual perversion in the most grotesque ways. Humanity showing just not just apathy towards God, but hatred towards God. Almost like anger and obsession with anything that's righteous and moral. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, characterized, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, the great judgment... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, just acting like nothing was ever going to be happening. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be in the coming of the son of man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other left. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other left. And Jesus said, watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So it was clearly understood by Jesus earlier followers that he was coming back once again. What we know, having the benefit of the full canon of the New Testament scriptures, is that will happen, the return of the Lord, in two major events. In this sense, Jesus first returns for his church and then Jesus will return with his church. Jesus first returns for his church to take us out of this world 
before the judgment of the wrath of the Lamb is poured out upon this Christ-rejecting world for a time of a seven-year period during the tribulation when the wrath of the Lord is poured out on this earth for rejecting Christ and those who did not want to receive the wrath that Jesus already bore on the cross 2,000 years ago, and that was something they did not desire when Jesus bore the wrath for them, so they will sadly have to bear the wrath of the Lamb themselves during that seven-year period as God works once again in a unique way among Israel. But prior to that time, I believe, and I believe the Scripture clearly strongly teaches that Jesus is going to remove us. The Bible says that we were not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. And I believe Jesus bore my wrath. And I don't believe that Jesus beats up his bride and pours blood on it and drags it through a bunch of misery. If any one of my sons tried that with my daughters, I'm small, but they wouldn't be here. Right? I mean, nobody does that to their bride. We're the bride of Christ. And so I believe Jesus, prior to his wrath being poured out on the earth, is going to take his bride away. We've been spared from that because of what he already bore for us. He already endured the wrath of God on our behalf, and he is going to remove us, take us into glory. And as we're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb for a seven-year period as tribulation is happening on this earth, Jesus first returns for his church to pull us out of here, to remove us and rescue us. And then at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus then returns with his church what we refer to as the second coming of Christ, where evil and the Antichrist and everything in rebellion to God is overthrown, and we return with Jesus in glory as he comes back, touches down upon this earth, and sets up his kingdom to rule and reign the kingdom of God for a thousand years upon this earth as he establishes the kingdom age and takes his throne that he rightly deserves. But for those of us who are believers, we are right now watching and waiting for the Lord to basically, if you would, return for his church, to pull us out of here. That at any moment, and there is nothing prophetic left on the calendar that needs to be done for Jesus to remove us, and this is how it will happen, instantaneously. Instantaneously. What we often refer to as the rapture or the catching away of the saints. The Bible speaks of such in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Jesus appears once again and is coming for us to remove us to heaven. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4 of the coming of the Lord. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So when Jesus returns for his church, he doesn't touch down upon the earth. It says we meet the Lord in the air. He appears out of the eternal dimension, and at the trumpet of God, as that takes place, whatever that will be, the Bible says that this will happen instantaneously, that we are caught up, that believers are snatched away, the catching away of the saints, and we are miraculously removed from this planet at any given moment. And the important thing is to recognize the, that that is going to happen instantaneously, the scripture describes. 
And my point behind that is this, as he's talking in this chapter, in this section here, about being ready for Jesus to appear so we can be confident and not ashamed. The emphasis of it happening instantaneously is important because when Jesus raptures his church, his true followers, into glory, and we meet the Lord in the air, there's no time to get ready. There's no time to stop looking at pornography. There's no time to deal with a sin issue in your life that you've been nursing and playing around with. There's no time to get rid of an attitude that's sinful or unforgiveness or bitterness that you've nursed in your heart forever and ever. There's no time to clean up your act, to make things right, to settle things that we know we should settle sometimes as believers when the Spirit's convicting us that we need to make something right. There's no time to resolve an issue before the flight. It happens instantaneously. (laughs) Instantaneously, the Lord just snatches us off of this planet. He appears, we're snatched away, and we meet Jesus face to face. That's why the aged apostle John here says with great wisdom as a 90-year-old man, we should always live ready. Always live ready. Because the imminency of the instant return of Jesus to pull us out of here can happen at any moment. And that's why John is saying here, little children abide in him. So when he appears, look what he says, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him in his presence at his coming. So when Jesus comes for us and appears and we meet him face to face instantly, he says, we want to have confidence and not be ashamed. That when I meet the Lord face to face, For the very first time is his son who he saved. I want to be assured everything's good between me and Jesus. I don't want to meet the Lord and things not be good between me and him. I don't want to have any worries or concerns about him appearing and finding me how I'm living or how I'm not living or what I'm involved in. Again, we want to be comfortable. We want to be confident in how we're living as a believer and confident in all that's good. As a child of God, the Bible wants us to be living in a way where we are completely confident. Hey, if Jesus shows up at any moment, I'm fine with that. Nothing to hide. I don't got anything going on in private. I don't got a little personal thing I'm nursing over here that nobody knows about. Nobody in the church is even that, that we're completely confident. To be able to just meet Jesus at any given moment and we're not paranoid. We are confident and comfortable in how we're living as his follower that, Lord, at any moment, I'm ready. And that we would just live in that way with that sense of wonderful internal peace and confidence. And the opposite of that is certainly that we do not want to be ashamed. Now, that's the opposite side of that. That the last thing that we want is that we would meet Jesus. Listen, because... If your trust is in Christ and you have faith in Jesus, salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. And if your faith is in Jesus, you're going to get snatched off the planet, just like Ananias and Sapphira. I believe they're in heaven. God just said, you're full of hypocrisy and I need to make an example. So life's over early for you. And God took them early. I believe they went into the presence of the Lord. I just believe God demonstrated his severity by allowing them to die prematurely to present an example to the church that he was not comfortable with hypocrisy in the church. But again, we're going to still meet Jesus. I'm not saying that, you know, the issue, oh, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm not going to go to heaven. You're going to meet Jesus, but you may meet Jesus and be very ashamed when you meet Jesus. And I, whatever that means, I don't want to experience that. <laughs> I don't want to meet Jesus and be ashamed because, again, 
a person is in, routinely indulging in some immoral behavior or nursing some sinful attitude or is involved in some practice of sin as a Christian that you know the Spirit is convicting you about, but you continue to return to that old well and you're just you know, continuing to participate. And as a result of that, the initial encounter is complete embarrassment. It's an embarrassing interruption. It's shame in some way. Again, maybe even just not serving the Lord. Maybe we're just wasting our life as a Christian, saved soul and wasted life. Like he said in the last you know, chapter, living a worldly life, loving the world. And then we meet Jesus and it's like, oh man, I just, I've been wasting the last three years of my life being so worldly instead of really following the Lord or really giving my heart to serve the Lord in some way. And what we don't want is that initial encounter to be where we are ashamed, embarrassed. You know, I just imagine somebody being caught up to meet the Lord and just kind of, this is what I just perceived. You know, you know, Jesus loves you. You know, he's secured your soul, but you meet him, you're like, oh, hi, Jesus. Don't want that. Oh, man. Just the awkwardness of, you know, kind of meeting the Lord in the air and sheepishly just, oh, being embarrassed because of maybe how we're living. So John advises us in our verse here how to be proactive intentionally, spiritually to avoid the regret. I don't know about you, but I want the first part of verse 28. I want to have confidence that it's coming. I don't want to be ashamed that it's coming. So John says, look, let me help with that. Here's how you can be confident at Jesus appearing and not ashamed. He says it's not complicated. The key right there in verse 28, he says it in the beginning part that we should abide in him. You see what he says? If we abide in him, that when he appears, we may be confident and not be ashamed. So the aged apostle says it's really not rocket science. The key is just abide in Jesus. That's a proactive way to keep yourself ready for the Lord's return. It helps you to stay in right relationship with him. The word abide means to remain together with or to continue in connection to or to stay in ongoing partnership. And in John 15, Jesus even there spoke about this importance for the Christian, his follower, to remain or abide in him. And he said, that's how we stay spiritually fruitful. And if we're remaining in right relationship with Jesus, then we're going to be doing those things that please Jesus. We're going to live righteously. We're going to want to honor the Lord. And it's one of the greatest safeguards to help us be ready to meet the Lord is by just remaining in close relationship and doing those things that help you to abide and remain in relationship with Jesus. Spending time with the Lord on a daily basis, getting alone with him, reading his word, praying, staying consistently in fellowship with the Lord's people. All these simple, basic things that we know as Christians help us stay connected to Jesus and just remain in relationship with him so that we're prepared to meet him with enthusiasm, right? And excitement when he shows up. And look, this morning, let me just say by way of loving encouragement, if that's something that you need to address right now in this week ahead, do it now, <laughs> I look at this crazy world, I, I realize the departure could be at any given moment. So if you need to address something, if you need to get more serious about remaining in right relationship with Jesus, it's important that we be ready. God wants us to be ready. He wants it to be a wonderful experience when we meet our Lord for that very first time at his coming. John, thinking about the return of the Lord, seems to address the most important issue of all, and that is making sure that we're actually truly saved. 
and that we're God's child. Because look what he says in verse 29 as he thinks of the coming of the Lord. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So indeed, it's important for those of us who are born again believers, who know that we know that we're saved, to live righteously, to walk in the spirit, to be ready to meet Jesus enthusiastically and not make it an embarrassing interruption. But the bigger issue John the Apostle is concerned about here in verse 29 is if there was anyone sitting among the church, among the gathering of the church that wasn't truly saved, that perhaps was just functioning like a spiritual spectator. And they were coming to the meetings because their parent forced them to come or their spouse told them that they should, or they were just coming regularly trying to get religion or, or figure out things of truth. And, and they're sitting among God's people and they're, they're, they're politely participating, but perhaps they're just still a spiritual spectator and they have not yet truly been converted spiritually and the person doesn't truly know Jesus in a personal way. Remember, one of the things that Jesus said is there are people who are gonna say, but Lord, Lord, we even did this. We cast out demons in your name. They, they called Jesus Lord with their mouth. They did religious works. Maybe they served in the church. And Jesus said, but I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship. And that's a very sobering reality. And here, John, I think because of that, is concerned if perhaps there was those who were never born again. He says, those who have been born of him. John addresses here the subject of knowing for sure and certain that a person has been, he says, verse 29, born of him. In other words, a true child of God, according to the word of God, which teaches that we must at some point in our physical life have a spiritual birth while we're still living on earth. We are all born with physical life, but the word of God teaches that we are born dead spiritually, born with a physical life, but we are all born absent of any spiritual life because of sin and our fallen condition. And so therefore, at some point, due to our sinful condition, we must be born spiritually during our earthly journey as a human. Jesus spoke about that in John chapter three, where he said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus declared, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus spoke of these two births, a physical birth, the breaking of the water of the birth canal and being born to experience physical life, flesh, fleshly birth, fleshly existence. And then he says that, but also there's that which is born of the spirit to experience the spiritual realm. And Jesus emphatically said, no one can see or enter the kingdom of God, unless this spiritual birth has happened in their life. And that transpires when a person humbly admits and recognizes that they are sinful, guilty, and that we are separated from God and that we deserve judgment after we die in hell. Yet we also see and believe God in his great love did something to make a way to resolve our spiritual problem that God sent Jesus to live the sinless life I can't and then to die sacrificially in my place to bear my wrath and judgment as he died on the cross as a savior in my place and rose from the dead to be alive so that Jesus could forgive my sin 
and that his work would be sufficient to pay for what I've done wrong and that he can save my soul and give me the gift, the free gift of eternal life if I ask him and and I can receive that from him and from him alone as the eternal son of God. And when we receive Jesus as savior, the spirit enters within us and then we come alive spiritually and that's how we are born spiritually. That's how we're born of God. A spiritual birth happens. We become God's child and then we're ready to see the kingdom. Then we're ready to enter into the kingdom of God and go to the father's house. Well, how can we know or be assured if that has transpired? Probably want to be certain of that, right? Probably want to be certain of that before we could die unexpectedly or Jesus returns unexpectedly. And John tells us right in our text, that's evidenced. Here's how we can be certain. It's evidenced by our way of living, by our life practice. Look what he says in verse 29. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So John says here, by way of counsel, the way we'll know if we've been born of God is his spirit, Jesus' spirit, enters inside of us and helps us to start living the way that he wants us to live. And he tells us of Jesus. We know that Jesus is righteous. That is, Jesus lived in right relationship with God the Father. Jesus lived in a righteous way. He refused sin. He did those things that honored God and pleased the Father. He did that which was righteous in accordance with the word of God. And Jesus sought to do what was right among mankind as he lived in a righteous way. And if we've truly received Jesus and been born of God and come alive spiritually, then the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord within us will be helping us to live in a way, John says here, where why we also, if we're born of God, everyone who is, will be practicing righteousness just like Jesus, our Lord, lived a righteous life. In other words, our general way of living, our routine practice our regular behavior of lifestyle will be living in a righteous way, living like Jesus lived, as Jesus within us gives us the desire and the power to live that way. Now, we may still struggle in human weakness. We may have periodic episodes of sin and failure, but that doesn't characterize our life. Our life practice is not characterized By sinful living, our life practice is characterized by living in a righteous way. That predominantly we are living in a right way before God. And look, that truth of verse 29 here, I believe is intended to both assure the believer and also to awaken the unsaved soul. It's intended to assure the believer who may be hesitant or faint in heart to know with peace and confidence that you have truly been born of God. I mean, I think I'm born again. I, I believe I'm a Christian, but sometimes I worry or I get hesitant. Am, am I ready? Am I tr- Well, look, John says here in verse 29, if you know Jesus is righteous, you can know that everyone who's practicing righteousness is born of him. So if you believe you're born again and you can also see that you're now living in a righteous way, very different than the way you once lived, and that you're living in a righteous way, you can know you clearly are in right relationship with Jesus. It's because you've been born of God, because you now live right in comparison to how you once used to live wrong. And you can see the the reality of that. And so he says, be assured of that. You are righteous. You are ready. Be, Be confident in that. But it's also intended, I believe, like most Bible truths, balanced to awaken the unsaved soul, 
that if we see a contradiction as a human being, that if a person looks at their life knowing Jesus is righteous, but yet also knowing that they are someone who their life practice does not line up with righteousness, that they're still comfortable living in an unrighteous way, a sinful way, a way that dishonors God or displeases God, and they can live that way by practice, then the word of God in love is saying, then there should be sincere concern in your soul. That something needs to get reconciled for preparedness to get ready while there's still time to get saved, to be born again, truly spiritually, to become God's child before you meet Jesus face to face. However, that may come through death or through the return of the Lord. Now, as John here mentions being born of God and becoming God's child, his mind seems to get overwhelmed by this wonderful privilege of experiencing God's love in that way. Because look what he says in verse one. He says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. My translation has an exclamation point, and I think there should be one there. An exclamation point. This stirred up old 90-year-old John the Apostle. He got excited at 90. Wow, he says. Behold, what manner of love. Sometimes I think as God's children, and I think John shows great wisdom under the inspiration of the Spirit. Sometimes as God's children, we become so routinely familiar with hearing about the love of God, which is wonderful, right? But sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, we say. And we get so comfortable hearing about the love of God and even experiencing love of God that sometimes we lose the wonder over that amazing reality of the great, great love of God. And this aged apostle says, sometimes it's good to just ponder that a little bit. He just think it through the great love of God. He says there, verse one, behold, that word means to consider, to think over and take time to ponder. To reflect upon something, to intentionally, with mental effort, take some time to just reflect and think something through. That's the idea. And John says that we should do that. What manner of love has come from God the Father? That word manner there of manner of love is a word in the Greek that means something that is foreign or out of this world. The idea is it's peculiar. It's strange. It's not like any other kind of love on the earth that we see among humanity. It is something, and it truly is, out of this world. We might say it is truly far out. Maybe you said that when you first got saved. You know, this is far out. I can't believe this is true. I can't believe God loves me this much and that he's willing to forgive me and make me his child. And the love of God is hard to comprehend. And notice how John says it's displayed in verse 1. It's displayed his love in making us to be called children of God. Now, look, I'll tell you one of the ways you can ponder that, what verse 1 is saying, is just take each word of that and take a walk with it and take a, take a thinking through that. He says, behold, what manner of love, he says, the Father has bestowed on us. Look at that. That we, let's think about that word, that we should be called children of God. We. I know me and I know some of you. That we would be called God's children? Us? Do you know what we've done, God? Do you know who we are? 
and you chose us still. Nobody wanted us, God. You, you, you want us to be your eternal child? Whoa. God, you adopted us? You could have picked any. Us? That we would be called children of God? Or again, that, that we would be called children of God? How about slaves? How about slave dogs? I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty high up to what I deserve. You can be a slave dog of God. You can be a servant, and that's true too. Children? Children? Romans 8 says that he's given us the spirit of adoption by which we may can say to him, Abba, Papa, Daddy, that intimacy with God, and that we should be called children of God? <laughs> God's children of all people. Do we realize who this is? This is God. And yet he's chosen us to be his children. And look, I think what John wants us to realize is to behold and consider that should encourage our soul with great security as a human being. Man, if you're insecure, 1 John 3, 1 should take away all your insecurities real quickly as a human being if you really meditate upon it. It really helps with insecurity because despite what others say about you, it makes me feel insecure. Despite how you feel about yourself and your own opinions. Oh, I struggle with being insecure. Look what God says about you. Almighty God says you have incredible value. That your worth is so incredible as a person and to him that he wants to adopt you as his child. And he wants you with him in a relationship now and for all of eternity. Boy, that should give us incredible encouragement that your worth has tremendous value. I don't care what your past has been. That's what you were. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and all things have become new. You're a child of the living God now. That's incredible security. It doesn't matter what people in the world think of you, your own view. That's human insecurity. Your security is that you have been loved and made a child of God. And John says here, therefore, the world does not know us, but because it's because it didn't know him. In other words, God knows us intimately as his eternal child, but the rest of the world doesn't know us or they fail to see who we are. And he says the reason is because they've rejected God. Look what he says there, verse one, the second half. He says they don't know God. In other words, because the world doesn't know God or care to honor God, that's why the world, in connection to that, doesn't know or recognize who we are as, and the value of our lives as God's children. That's why they don't respect us as God's children. Instead, what do they see us as many times? Many times the ungodly world sees us as problematic people standing in the way of their evil agendas or of their rebellion against God. And because we love God and desire to uphold righteousness as his sons and daughters, we create a source of light that exposes darkness or restrains evil. And therefore, the world doesn't only not like us nor want to acknowledge us, they despise us. And see, the issue is the connection, father, son, right? Because they don't like our father, they take it out on his kids. And this hatred that exists, sadly, by many in the world towards God, it just funnels over and kind of flows out to our rejection and our mistreatment. And look, though we may be rejected by mankind, let me encourage you this morning, you are valued by God. I don't care who's rejected you or who doesn't approve of you. God loves you and approves of you. And the Bible says in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing at all. 
You're God's, you're his kid, and despite rejection we may endure from other human beings, you're greatly loved by God. Your life has meaning and your life has value and purpose and live in light of that. That's your identity. You're God's child. You do have a purpose to live. You have great value to your life. God cherishes you to the point that he chose to adopt you. He says, verse two, and beloved, now we are children of God. It hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So John speaks here in verse two of this exciting change that's scheduled for the child of God at the moment of Jesus's revelation at his appearing when he returns for his church. Right now, we know we're God's children. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. We know, we sense within that our spirit and our soul has been redeemed. But at the same time, we also realize we're still waiting for the final part of our salvation experience, which is the redemption of our failing, sinful, broken human bodies. And we realize that that is still something to come, to receive a glorified body. Romans 8 says, we have the first fruits of the spirit dwelling within. Even we ourselves grown within, eagerly waiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. That is this supernatural experience that will happen when Jesus is revealed and when he returns, that we then receive the culmination of the salvation experience, the redemption of our body, the glorified eternal body will live in forever. First Corinthians 15 says it this way, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. The idea is everyone isn't going to die physically because Jesus is going to rapture the church at some moment, but we shall all be changed or transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye when the last trumpet's blown and we who are living will be transformed and our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die, our mortal bodies transformed into immoral bodies. So John says here, what we do know is we don't have all the answers of what that glorified body will be like. We don't have the answer to all of that. John says that here freely. He says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be like. In other words, we know it's a guaranteed thing. We know Jesus is coming. We know we're gonna get an eternal body, a transformed glorified body for the eternal dimension and the kingdom of God. Yet some things are still unknown about those realities. Two things are certain, and John mentions right here in our verse. Two things we do know for certain is he says here in verse two, that we shall see him, that's Jesus, as he is. That is, that when we receive that glorified eternal body with glorified eyes and a glorified eternal mind, then we can fully see everything about Jesus because then we can handle it. Right now, if we saw Jesus in his glory, those eyes would melt right out of your sockets and your brain would be butter on a hot summer day. You'd blow up because he's that glorious. But in that moment, when we receive our glorified body, finally, the person who saved our soul and our loving pen pal, who we've been writing from a distance and communicating with, finally, you get to see him face to face and see him in his completeness, everything about him. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 13. Right now we see 
through things dimly like a mirror, but one day we're going to know fully as we see him face to face. When we get that glorified body, we'll be able to look upon Jesus face to face and be able to see everything about Jesus that we wanted to know about him for all of eternity. And he says in that moment also, when that transformation of our body happens, he also says, verse two, that notice we shall be like him. That is like him in his glorified, resurrected body. We'll receive a body like Jesus's glorified, resurrected body. It seems that instantaneously when Jesus is revealed and he calls his church home, that that moment that we encounter the Lord Jesus, that his power supernaturally transforms us and changes us instantaneously in that moment where we receive our eternal body. Certainly we retain the same identity, but we receive a body like unto his in that it has that same eternal glorified capacity. And that lifelong Christian process is completed in that moment of Jesus' revelation. And what is that lifelong Christian process we understand? Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 3 tell us that right now, since we've been saved, we're being what? Conformed into the image of Jesus by the Spirit's transforming work inside of us. So right now, little by little, the Spirit's changing us making us a little bit more like Jesus. Every day as we spend time with him, he makes us a little bit more Christ-like. As we remain in relationship with Jesus, the spirit makes us more like him, more and more like him. But the moment he's revealed, the process is done. And I don't know about you, but for the rest of eternity, that means no more struggling with the sin nature. It's gone. All that wrestling that we hate as a Christian, Lord, I hate that I still think like that. Lord, I hate that I can still be prone to act like that sometimes. All that's gone. Imagine, we instantly receive that glorified body to transform us. And John says, verse 3 in conclusion, and everyone who has this hope, the hope of Jesus coming in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So notice, for now, what helps us to keep avoiding sin to keep walking in righteousness, to keep living for the Lord, one of the greatest factors to influence that in our life, the Bible says here is knowing and expecting the return of the Lord. John here in verse three speaks of the return of the Lord as someone having this hope within them. That is a hope that he is coming back for me, that he's gonna show up at any moment. The Bible in Titus two says, we're to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. That is, we have this blessed hope that one day Jesus, in an instant, is going to remove us from this sin-cursed, struggling world that we're constantly bombarded with, wrestling with. And he's going to remove us from these sinful, weak human bodies and bring us into his glorious presence. But he says the wonderful influence of having that hope within, it has a purifying effect on your life as a Christian. It has this effect whereby you don't want to be fooling around and acting dumb spiritually because you have this hope. You know what? When he appears, I don't want it to be an embarrassing interruption. I want it to be an exciting encounter because I was confident and ready to meet the Lord. And see, this is why, folks, God wants us as his people to live 
in the hopeful expectation of the imminent return of Jesus because it helps us live godly. It helps us not get apathetic and lazy spiritually. It helps us not compromise, but to say, Lord, at any moment you can show up and I want you to say, right on. Good to meet you. And that you can have that same blessed experience in return towards him.